Skip beep The review podcast. Yeah. All right. Um. Hi, Bree. Hi. Welcome to the review podcast. This is a podcast in which we. You want to finish it off? We review movies and then we review movies. Yeah. So we watch the movie. We talk about the movie, and normally the movie is a movie that we've seen at least once. At least one of us has seen the movie before. And that's going to be a lot with this new season of the Review Podcast, where it's more likely one of us has seen the movie, and then the other one hasn't seen it. Brie, I don't know if you've seen any of the movies that are on my directorial list, um, but there's only one on yours that I haven't seen, so... Welcome to a new and improved review podcast. We are officially out of Halloween Jurassic Park. We're done. We're and out of it. And we're into um... our summer series, which I am calling our serious summer because <laughs> it is all a director's and actor's series. So to begin our director's series, well, let's recap it a little bit. How we came here. How we got here. So... Bree and I had been discussing where to go after Halloween and Jurassic Park were over because that took about four months. Our first four months of the review podcast were Halloween, Jurassic Park. And I said, we, we were at Chili's the other day. Oh, we have our best epiphanies at Chili's. We have our best conversations at Chili's. Um, so I'm sitting there eating my lunch burger that I ordered accidentally with all the fixings on it, even though I hate mustard. And, you know, it could have been my fault because I love all the fixings. So I ordered the lunch burger. No modifications. I strongly dislike mustard. And Anthony said, I'll just have the same thing. Big mistake. Big mistake. <laughs> so we're at Chili's. We're eating our lunch and we're discussing where to go next with the podcast. And I told Bri, I said, you know what would be cool is if we focused in on a couple directors instead of doing franchises. I said, because I'm a little franchised out covering like, I don't know, 13 Halloween movies and like four, five Jurassic Park movies all straight together. It felt like we were lacking a little bit of diversity in our uh, catalog of movies. So I said, no more franchises. Let's take a break from franchises. And she really liked the idea of the director series because you had one in mind already. Like immediately you're like, I know who I'm doing. Yeah, because, you know, this is a director I I love. Like, so for real. So who was your choice? We each chose a director to focus on in four movies from that director to zone in on um i chose tim burton um tim burton has been a favorite of mine for a long time did a whole project on tim burton when i was in college which my art teachers asked me why i wasn't a film major and i said sir you realize you're talking to i'm like (laughs) i got bills to pay yeah (laughs) um good yeah so tim burton is a great choice i looked at brie and i was oh good choice brie good choice brie um and then I said, mine is uh, got to be Paul Thomas Anderson, one of my favorite directors. He's got a little bit of a smaller catalog of movies than Tim Burton does. But I think almost every one of PTA's movies is high quality. And there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to dissect there in terms of a directorial and artistic style. Um so that's what we're kicking it off with. And then later on in the summer, we'll do actor series, which if you listen to our last podcast, uh, we gave a hint as to 
where we're going with that. We'll both be covering um, a couple movies from different actors. Brie, who are you choosing? Meryl Streep. And I'll be choosing Adam Sandler. So um, be prepared for that. But we're going to get into our directorial series first. And, and of course, Anthony had to start off the directorial series because he... We're starting off with a bang. <laughs> a bang. You get it? Do you get the joke about the banging? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, agree. yeah. We're starting off the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson series with his first major movie. He did a movie before this called Hard Eight. Um, but Hard Eight, um, it had a lot of like behind-the-scenes mumbo-jumbo to it where PTA got kicked out of the... Uh, the editing room in that movie. So it was not his final like vision. And even though the movie is very good, we wanted to start, well, I wanted to start off with um, the movie that really puts him on the map and gives him a lot of like credibility and notoriety. It's his first like really major kind of bigger budget movie where he's working with an ensemble cast and it's kind of this larger epic. It's a two and a half hour long movie about the 1970s porn industry in San Fernando Valley um today we are kicking off the paul thomas anderson series with his 1997 hit boogie nights starring oh god let me list them off mark Wahlberg, mark Wahlberg, don Cheadle, don Cheadle, julianne moore julianne moore burt reynolds yep uh heather graham philip seymour hoffman we've got john c Riley. we've got alfred molina for one scene He's fabulous He's in this. Awesome. Um, Thomas Jane for a couple scenes. We've also got William H. Macy in the film. Am I missing anybody? Did I'm I get not, everyone? I, I think you got most notable. Most notable, yeah. Um, I mean, this movie is just littered with so many people who are famous and then are going to be big hits later on. Like... I don't know what I, I don't know if Mark Wahlberg did too much before this movie, but definitely like after this movie is when the Wahlberg era hits, like the Cheadle era hits. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman starts to get a little bit more notoriety after this movie, and this like this cast is just so massive, and for a lot of them, this is where it kicks off for a lot of these actors. So this movie to me is like really fascinating in not only that it got made in the time period that it got made in, not only that it got made, but it's also two and a half hours long, that it also has this large ensemble cast, also that it's freaking good. Like it's a really, really, really good movie. I have to say it did shock me to like watch a two and a half hour movie that's not the avengers that's not like the avengers or something like that i was like oh this movie this is pretty long uh it's pretty long yeah we had to separate it out because yeah i had to go to a workout in the middle of watching the movie because we okay we woke up later than we said we were gonna wake we up. were supposed to wake up at like 7 30 this morning but to we, watch we, the movie. we woke up at like nine yeah <laughs> so i was like okay 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 um let's get booger nights on the tv Let's keep going. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, Brie, this is a two and a half hour long movie. Like we got to space out time for it. We couldn't do it last night because we're recording this on Easter Monday. And um, we had Easter, you know, yesterday with the family. And we just couldn't, we didn't have enough time to do everything, especially because you have to carve out two and a half hours to watch this movie. 
And, and then even, we like to record like right after. Right. So like we we had to really like time ourselves properly. And this is going to be for the entire Paul Thomas Anderson uh, quadra- quadrology. Is that what it's called? The four movies um, in succession. What? How would I know? Quad- quadology. Quadology. Um, He's I, just saying it over and over again until he decides that it sounds the I right. I think that's the right one. Quadology. Because a duology is two movies. A trilogy is three. Keep and, talking. And then a quadology is four. But we're going to have to do that for all of these movies because I think the only one that we're not covering or that we are covering that's not two and a half hours long is uh, Punch Drunk Love later on. So we're going to really have to be strategic. Tetralogy. A tetralogy? Yeah. That's Tetralogy four? or Quartet. Quartet. Ah, oh, quartet. Get out of here. It's four. That's four guys on a violin. A series of five is a quintet or a pentalogy. So, a tetralogy. A te- tetralogy? Yeah. That's the correct vernacular. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I was saying all three of the versions that I was saying <laughs> wrong. Um, anyway, so we're ready. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have to uh, really space out our time and plan these movies strategically from here on out because they're all like two and a half hours long. Um, except for Punch Drunk Love, but um, we'll get into that one a little bit later on. So, well, first of all, Brie, before we actually get into the movie, how are you today? I am doing good. I'm still a little bit f- like weird feeling from Easter, you know, like when you ate too much and now like the week after Easter, you're just like, did I gain 10 pounds? You want to burn through um, what we had for Easter dinner? Um, we had oh, and before Easter dinner. So we we, we and o- after Easter dinner, <laughs> we open up with the delicious charcuterie board. Mm-hmm. Um, then we go into the actual. What was the meat that I was eating? Was that that wasn't just salami? There I was, wasn't eating salami. There prosciutto. Was sal- there was salami, prosciutto, a different type of salami, and like several cheeses and grapes and nuts. I felt like I ate. I was the only one eating that meat. I ate all the prosciutto myself. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then for the dinner, we had hey, ham. Gab- gabagool over here. Ham, of course. Pierogi, Polish sausage, German potato salad, ramen noodle salad, um, broccoli rice casserole. Did you say Polish sausage? Yeah. Polish sausage. Polish sausage. Um, and then for dessert, there were macarons. Uh, that was, okay, so story time with Anthony and Bree. <laughs> um, I've never had a macaroon before, and we were literally just watching the show Crime Scene Kitchen on Fox because, like, we put on cooking shows in the background, like as we just like hang out at the house, and they were making macaroons, like a macaroon tower. And I looked at Bree and I said, "You know, I've never had a macaroon before." And she looked at me and she said, "Well, I guess we're getting macaroons." And then we never got the macaroons, so. Come Easter Sunday, we walk in and Bree's like, my sister's bringing macaroons. I said, oh, hell, hell yeah. It's over. It's over. Like, I'm going to have my first macaroon. And he picked a chocolate macaroon. I went with the safest option because the other ones were like pistachio and I didn't know the other flavors. There was like a lemon one. There was a lemon one. I picked my favorite, raspberry. Yeah. So I ate like half the chocolate one because it was the safest option. It was good. And then Brie let me try the raspberry one. And I was the like, holy moly, like this is really, really good. So 
I was like a bigger fan of the raspberry macaroon than the chocolate one, I think. And then we've decided that we might want to get a macaroon tower instead of a wedding cake. I I would be on board with that. <laughs> I would be on board with that. Um, we already decided like we weren't going to get like a traditional wedding cake, like a big wedding cake. Well, that's also because like so many people are getting married this year. And like, I don't know if we'd even get a place to make us a wedding cake. Yeah, it could be tough, especially like this late in the game. We're getting married in October. And it, it is kind of late. At the time of this recording, it is uh, the end of middle of April. So we got we to gotta get, if we want this macaroon tower, we got to get that sorted out. Anthony will have some stuff to do this week because he's off. So. Yeah, I'm on my school spring break. However, oh. um, this is coming, I don't know, this podcast will be coming about three weeks after I'm on spring break. <laughs> so we'll let you know if Anthony gets off his booty cheeks and contacts a bakery. The answer is going to be No. <laughs> Um, but you, we'll see. How how much stuff have you done for the wedding by yourself? By myself? Yes. Like very little. I've name, made I've made some payments. But name like any of the planning <laughs> that you've done. Oh, the by pl- yeah, that's what I said. The planning, like very little. But, but um, like, what have you done by yourself? Making the payments, going to the <laughs> venue, and not, giving them the check. He has not done any planning at all i contacted the florist i paid for the you florist. get mad at me i though. contacted the dj i paid for the dj i made the save the dates i contacted the photographer for our engagement photos i'm going to purchase and get all the stuff for our invitations done this is brianna's doing everything and everything for this wedding and anthony's just sitting pretty he won't even contact and look for bakeries I never said I wouldn't. You I just, just said, said no. Probably won't happen, but probably doesn't always mean, you know, it won't happen. Uh, we'll get back to you on that <laughs> one. We'll get back to you on that one. So, uh, here we are once again, and we are. Uh, I don't know. Are we done BSing? Is that the end of our BSing? Yeah, Do you have anything else you want to talk about um, before I, we get into the no, movie? No, I'm ready to go into um booger nights booger nights okay um paul thomas anderson's classic boogie nights uh released in 1997 we have our all-star ensemble cast that we listed off to you however brie i do want to make note um of a few things before we actually get started with okay the, with i'm the ready pod. um i want to make note to you uh so we have the different roles in the movie and some of the actors and actresses that were either offered the role before we got our final cast and, and denied it or were considered for the role. So you tell me what you think about these. We'll start off with, um, we'll start, we'll start low. Um, the character of Scotty, Scotty J who's played by a phenomenal actor, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, he was he was always the actor in mind for the role, but they had also considered Jack Black. What do you I think? I think Philip Seymour Hoffman was the better actor. I also think so. Jack Black would have yeah. made it. Jack Black, though, he's really good. He, beep, beep, I would say Jack Black in serious roles, he's very good. When we saw seen Jack he's, Black in serious he roles, has, he's been a leading man in a romantic comedy oh yeah he the holiday oh he's so good in that the movie. holiday 
I don't know. I just don't see him as like. Man, I should have picked him for my actor series. Thing. I thought about it. And honestly, mm-hmm. I thought about Jack Black, and I'm like, we're going to be talking about the same movie <laughs> <laughs> over and over again. Okay, so the role of Amber, who is played by Julianne Moore. Um, Julianne Moore uh, earned herself, I believe, an Academy Award nomination for this role. Um, in consideration was Marissa Tomei. I think Julianne Moore was the correct cast for this. I agree. I I, agree. I love Julianne Moore. Now I'm thinking about all the movies I could have picked for Dude, Julianne she Moore. Would, she would have been a really great. A- I was actually gonna. There's this suge- one if you movie. You didn't pick Meryl. I was gonna suggest her. Julianne, I believe Julianne Moore stars in this movie where she has early onset yes. Alzheimer's. Uh, still Alice. Oh, that is the saddest movie I've ever mm-hmm. watched in my life. Yeah. Well, because early onset Alzheimer's is like the saddest thing in the entire world. Yeah. Oh. Oh. I hurt my hip oh i <laughs> readjusted and i hurt my hip Ouch. julianne moore is a really okay. great actress and i think she was the perfect choice for this one yes i agree um and we can talk more about her very nuanced performance in this movie a little bit later on um okay uh the character of buck played by john uh john Cheadle, don Cheadle, um was offered to samuel jackson I don't know if Samuel L. Jackson could have pulled that role off. It's, cause he's a, 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 Buck is a little bit more of a quieter character. Yeah, he's a character. quieter character where he's kind of like, I mean, just trying to survive. And, you know, he's, he's I a think- vict- Buck is a victim of the fads at the time and wanting to succeed, but also not really know, like not trusting himself to succeed. You I know? just don't know if anyone else could have done I feel like they picked the best actor for the role. I would agree. Um, Don Cheadle's great. We're big Cheadle heads here <laughs> at Review. Um, okay, uh, the character of Roller Girl, who is played by Heather Graham, um, was offered to and denied by Gwyneth Paltrow. That she would been... not have done it. No. No way. There's a full frontal nudity scene in Heather there. Heather Graham goes full frontal in this um, movie. Because she That was her first day on... The, the story is like that was her first day on set, too. Gwyneth Paltrow would have never gotten any of her further roles if she had taken this one. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit later on with Heather Graham. Um, because there are a few actors that disavowed this movie. That refused to talk about it. Um, and Heather Graham is one of them. And it's because of the aftermath of this movie. Well, you know, no one told her she had to do full frontal. That's true. No one forces you to do anything. You chose. Well, like I, I don't know. I Hollywood is a. I know Hollywood's a monster. I know. I mean, though. We say that on from the outside looking in. You can't go on to do family friendly movies. She did family friendly. When? No, I'm telling you. That was probably why Gwyneth Paltrow turned it mm. down because you can't go from doing full frontal to family friendly. Um, we could relate like he- this to Heather Graham. Blippi and his pooping on me. <laughs> you you want to tell that story real <laughs> no, quick? I don't. Okay. Yeah, I found this out yesterday. Oh yeah. There's okay. A, there's I'll a ta- chil- there's a children's artist. Um, a YouTube Blippi. And Be careful. I know. Okay. Apparently, the internet is scrubbed. The, in- the apparently he scrubbed the internet before he was like this right now he's like a children's star but before he used to have like a youtube or something where he pooped on people yeah and i was like how did you find this out youtube you can't do that on youtube or maybe it was like a like a a website or something grown simpson stuff 
Um, <laughs> anyway, I'm hearing about this because my nephew loves like this ex- excavator song. Yeah, we by listened Blippi. to it maybe about a hundred times yeah. yesterday. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I guess like I don't. As long as you're not pooping on people on this kids show, like I don't really care. I feel like sometimes Does somebody's past, like depending on what they did, matter to their career I, I, now. I feel like if you aren't, as long as you aren't like a sex offender, why why can't you go? from doing a, a movie like it would be the parents fault if oh blippy's in just don't google boogie, blippy. if <laughs> blippy's in boogie nights and he does full frontal your fault for them letting your kid watch a movie that's that not appropriate like, that was like the kid. whole thing and i'm gonna bring it back to professional wrestling for a moment here that was the whole thing about the wwe like not wanting to make reference to or put china in the hall of fame um because at one point i forget who said it but was like they were like you know you want somebody in the hall of fame that if if my kids googled that person like they they'd be okay and they wouldn't find anything like super crazy but Um, you know that's your job because china did adult films i mean but that's your fault as the parent i don't feel like adults should be punished for any of the things that they do it's it's I don't know if this is the same conversation or if it's a similar um, a, a similar notion as like Miley Cyrus when she broke off of Hannah Montana and did like Wrecking Ball or like the, the VMA performance that she did where she was like, I'm done with Disney. I'm done being family friendly and like I'm just going to be myself. Do we like we hold Miley Cyrus and we say like, go, you go, girl. Right. Like we say. That's oh, great. That I, uh, my, that's I always great that uplift Miley. sex work because I feel like everyone partakes in the the outcome of sex work. Like tons of people go on. Like tons of people uh, go to strip clubs every year, um, consume porn, um, consume adult film, like everything. But yet we demonize the people who. Pro- it's the same thing that fast food workers go through. Like is they're it? no like fast food workers are demonized for like oh you're you're choosing to be poor like you're the scum but we can't work without you we need what you do. It's same Can you thing imagine if work. just like all porn just stopped? If everyone just stopped doing porn and like how how do you how different do you think at least American society would be? Well, I I think about like so many people consume that media like we have only fans for that full reason and it's like people pay up the wazoo to see some like we like we talked about this the other day where it's like there's a female wrestler uh tony storm who she started she got out of wwe she started her only fans she made like 10 grand in like a couple hours but she she has i mean i don't i don't know what um content she has on her only fans but i have to assume it's not like it's not child friendly it well it's a it's not child friendly but i don't even think she's going topless i don't even think that's it i think it's just a little bit more risque of of photos but you know people want it so you gotta give and, people what they want and i i also Make your think money. that we get, we're too like I guess America is like so full of itself sometimes. We it's are, like the same we are people, very like virtuous. In... The same people who demonize these people are the people who partake the most. 
Oh, no. Yeah, you're right. It's we are a very virtuous society here in America, and we do demonize things like pornography. And I think that's something that Paul Thomas Anderson kind of speaks to in this movie is like how different we look at porn from the 70s, the golden age of pornography when it was starting to become more popular and more popular and more popular to right now where we, I mean, you can see the transition of the history of pornography in, in America in the 70s. Like they had theaters. You can go to a theater and watch a, a porno. And like even in this movie, uh, Burt Reynolds character is looking at reviews. They were reviewing porn like it was an actual like theatrical film like it's the avengers that came out you know like it's the latest marvel movie and then we go from like well it's not in theaters anymore to it's on vhs to it's on it's it's a dvd that you have to call a number if you see like on comedy central after dark you'd see like girls gone wild and you call the number and you order the dvd um to now it's just like think like it's on the internet and it's just widely available for free for everybody, you know? And there's this, like, history of how it shifted. And I think that's a direct response to how the country has viewed pornography and kind of demonized it in the sense, even though they're consuming it at a very large rate. I think, like, now people consume pornography more so because it's at the tip of your fingers, right? Like it's at the, the drop of a dime. You can just Google something. And I think we consume it more now, but we also are like much more embarrassed of it now than we were in the 70s. Well, you have to think the cultural shift from like the 70s to now. Like we've gone through like this whole, I mean, I get the Christ out of my country. I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> it, it's... It goes it goes back to, I think, the Puritans. I just I just don't get the embarrassing religious virtue. I don't get like being embarrassed of sex. Everyone's doing it like everyone's. But you even admitted before that like you're I get embarrassed like I do. But I think it's like it's how we were raised. It's how you're raised. Like, oh, like we never talked. about. I didn't even get the sex talk in my house. Mm hmm. It was embarrassing. No one talked about it. My parents now talk to me about sex more than I would like them to. <laughs> like um, my mom, like talking about our life. I'm like, please stop. Please but stop. <laughs> but you you have talked about on the podcast before, like when we were discussing like euphoria. Oh, so that makes me it, uncomfortable. It kind of makes us uncomfortable just like seeing that on on screen where it's like, why? Why does it make us uncomfortable? And it's like, that's the way we were raised. That's the way society has kind of shifted from being very comfortable with the porn industry to now it's like taboo almost like you got to be careful. Um, The story is that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, when they were uh, test screening these movies, he would sit in the theater and he would see people laughing and he would see people enjoying the movie. But then when it came time for the focus group, people would say that they didn't like the movie. So he was like, why aren't people liking the movie i can see them clearly enjoying it in the theater when i'm there and it what it came down to was people were kind of embarrassed to enjoy a movie that's about porn you know um they would be less likely to recommend it to a friend because of the societal taboo around pornography it's like oh if i recommend boogie nights to you 
and it's a movie about the porn industry. You're gonna think I'm some de- you're gonna sexual think I'm like deviant. a deviant, yeah. So th- uh, there is like a hundred percent a taboo about this stuff, and and that is addressed in the movie too, especially with like Julianne Moore's character, like. Part of the reason why she doesn't get custody of her kid is because she's an adult film star. She's an adult film star, and, be, and the lifestyle that surrounds being an adult film star, which was her choice, and we'll talk about that. But um, going back to it, oh, this is a solid conversation. You were worried. You're all worried. We're like, we're not going to have anything to talk about here. Um, so, Roller Girl, um, played by Heather Graham, was it was also offered to Gwyneth Paltrow, who denied it. In consideration was also Drew Barrymore. I love Drew Barrymore. I'm, I'm leading with the I love Drew Mar- Barrymore to say in the nicest way. Drew Barrymore cannot, in my opinion, do sexy. I don't think so. And I think that's because Drew Barrymore, for a majority of her, the beginning of her career. She's very girl next door. She would, Well, not even girl next door, but like America's sweetheart. Yeah. yeah. So I think this would have been kind of uncomfortable if mm-hmm. it was drew barrymore like they picked an actress that like i see as like an adult like like when you watch we keep saying the word virtuous like if i was to see drew barrymore i'd be like what is the girl from never been kissed doing on my screen yeah like yeah. having sexual relations with this guy that guy and the next mm-hmm. it just doesn't fit. like doing full frontal like roller girl does in the movie uh yeah i would not have been able to see drew i don't uh, do you think drew barrymore would have accepted the role if it was offered to her um maybe we where is drew in her career at this point at 97 she's just coming off of scream she might have. She might have. But right? it would have drastically changed the trajectory of her career. Yeah. I don't know if we'd see her on TV sitcoms if that was the mm-hmm. case in because her earlier career. Scream was the movie that kind of put Drew Barrymore out of the kind of America's sweetheart look where she's swearing and then she's like gutted on screen. Because, But I, I think about like definitely with drew barrymore like she's been she has her own talk show and like stuff like that does yeah it's like would her career have not gone to the point it is now would she be doing romantic comedies with adam sandler if she did roller girl yeah probably not i don't know yeah the in in an alternate timeline what we will have seen um burt reynolds was always the choice for uh jack and um, his hair looked fake as Hell. His hair, so you know what he looked like? He looked like in the Santa Claus 3. Yes, the plastic Santa Yeah, Claus. the plastic toy Santa Claus. I was like, what's his hair do? Just like, looks like, mm-hmm. a, like a plastic wig. That's what I thought too. I looked, I said Santa Claus 3. Um, the role of uh, Dirk Diggler, uh, played by Mark Wahlberg, who does a great job. I don't know why we don't see this depth of range in Mark Wahlberg's performances these days, but... Um, the role was initially offered to Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, he would have done an amazing he job. He would have done an amazing job. He had to turn it down, though, because he was uh, getting ready to film Titanic. Do you know what's crazy? What's up? I had a dream about Leonardo DiCaprio last night. What was the dream? Uh, I don't want to get into oh, details. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair, I guess. Um, 
It involved like like ball gowns and like tuxedos and like us being a couple. It was really cute. You went to the uh, debutantes ball. Yeah, we were like, it was like a competition of like cutest couple. Debutantes ball. And you went to a debutantes <laughs> ball with Leonardo DiCaprio. And okay, I guess I did go into detail about. It. <laughs> Isn't that a debutantes ball? I I don't know. Or it's- is that with your dad? I don't even know, but uh, I know like I don't know the South. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not Southern. Southern culture. But we we like went and we bought like nice outfits and like we were like trying to win a like a competition. Um, and I just remember like looking up at Leonardo and like his eyes sparkling. And then I woke up. God dang it! And I couldn't go back to sleep to redream about it because we had to watch Booger Nights. So yeah, okay. <laughs> Blame Booger Nights. <laughs> um. So Leo was offered the role but denied it because he was filming Titanic. Um, they offered it to Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, I wouldn't who, have watched who it. Who said it was no? Um, and then Leonardo DiCaprio recommended uh, Mark Wahlberg for the role, and Mark Wahlberg ultimately said yes. Um, also in consideration for the role, listen to this and tell me what you think of these guys: um, Ben Affleck. You think he would have done a good job oh, as I'm not a big I'm not a big Affleck guy. Oh man, I love Affleck. Um Matt Damon. He would have done an okay job. I thought he would have been okay. He um, would be like the same thing though. It would be like the same it would be like if you had casted Mark Wahlberg but just like in a different font. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Ethan Hawke. Eh. I don't know. Eh. I Haw- uh Ethan Hawke was in like a I don't I I don't know if I could have seen him in this role in particular. Um, and Jason Lee was in consideration too. Uh, Jason Lee, uh, Brie, if you are, do you know who Jason Lee? He played uh, Brody in Mallrats. He played um, Earl in My Name Is Earl. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I, you should have led with that. I should have led with Earl. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I know my name. He played um, what's his name in Alvin and the Chipmunks. Oh, Dave. Yeah, he's Dave. Dave, Dave Seville. Um, so those were the alternate. Oh, he would have been good in that role. Dave? Yeah. Because he got that kind of like gross look. He would have been perfect. Wait, you think Mark Wahlberg has a gross look? Uh, I mean, would I dream of Mark Wahlberg? No. My peacock. God, let me fly. Oh, I think I, I, I would have dreamed about Leonardo DiCaprio, Avi. Because mm-hmm. um, I already dream about Leonardo DiCaprio, apparently. Going to, to high, society, he, he going been to really high society balls. So... A lot of these people that were cast and the, these actors that were cast were not the first uh, choices for the roles, but we get this very great ensemble cast ultimately that are is composed of actors that are going to be big deals later on in their careers. So I guess my wondering is like, how did how did Paul Thomas Anderson luck out with like was it strategic or was it you know? I think sometimes directors just know who's who's good. Who's good. Mm-hmm. So a couple of actors, a little background history here in Boogie Nights, a couple of actors that were involved in the movie um, ultimately did not like being a part of the movie or the legacy of the movie. Um, number one was Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds had a lot of problems on set of the movie. Um Paul Thomas Anderson wanted Burt Reynolds for this role of Jack so badly that he kept offering the role to Burt Reynolds and Burt Reynolds kept denying it. And by the fourth time, 
Paul Thomas Anderson um, offered the role, Burt Reynolds yelled at him and said, no, stop contacting me, but then ultimately took the role um, where they didn't get along on set is the big story behind this movie is Burt Reynolds and Paul Thomas Anderson didn't get along on set. PTA was 26 when he made this movie. And I, I have to find it, find that it's difficult for a 26 year old to handle all of this, right? Like this big ensemble cast, this large epic that like, especially with dealing with the studio, like how do you get the studio to give you all this money and all of this creative freedom as a 26 year old? It, it, that's crazy to me because we're 26 <laughs> and I'm like I would not feel comfortable don't remind me um so Burt Reynolds d- uh, did not get along with Paul Thomas Anderson at all uh he thought Paul Thomas Anderson was uh he, like he thought that everything he was doing was the first thing that's ever been done on film the first time anyone's ever done a tracking shot the first time anyone's ever done a one um and Burt Reynolds is like no I've been in the game long enough to know like you're basically you're nothing special and they butted heads a lot because of that uh Burt Reynolds ultimately did not want to take direction that he was given and it the story is that it led to a fist fight on set between Burt Reynolds and uh PTA however um Burt Reynolds after the movie was done like he filmed the movie he was done he did it it earned him an Oscar nomination and it earned him a Golden Globe uh, he won the Golden Globe for Best Actor or Best Supporting Actor and then disavowed the movie. And basically he fired his agent who got him into the movie and he said, uh, I no longer want to be associated with this. I don't want to answer any questions about Boogie Nights. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, in 2014, he sold his Golden Globe for winning for Boogie Nights. Um and he sold it for $21,250. I don't understand, like, why you hate being in a movie so much. He didn't like the nature of the film. That Well, first of all, he didn't like Paul Thomas Anderson. Second of all, he didn't like that the movie was about the porn industry. You accepted the role. That's what I'm saying. Like, Burt Reynolds has said in the past that he was, like, unaware of the nature of the, of the movie. And it's like, dude, you're these lines that you're saying are so vulgar. How do you not understand this? Um, I think he was just making excuses. Yeah. And I think that Burt Reynolds just really didn't like Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, and PTA, even though they did not get along and they fist fought on sets, still offered him a role in his next movie, Magnolia. And Burt Reynolds was like, no, I'm not doing it. It's probably for the best. Uh, so Burt Reynolds, not a, not a fan of this movie at all. Does not want to be associated with it. Um, even though he did great and... The story is that on Paul Thomas Anderson's fourth try of getting Burt Reynolds to be in the movie, Burt Reynolds screamed at him and PTA responded with, now if you do that on set, you'll get an Oscar. And that's what brought him in. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Mark Wahlberg uh, disavowed the movie uh, later in his career because Mark Mark Wahlberg uh, became a born-again Christian. And it was through religious values that Mark Wahlberg said... If I'm looking back at it now, where I am in my life and in my career now, this isn't something that I would probably accept right now, um, that role. So, yeah. No one cares. So Mark Wahlberg, disav- I wouldn't say directly disavowed it, but basically was like, mm, I'm not super proud of it. I'm not super proud of the role. Heather Graham uh, refuses to talk about Boogie Nights. Um, 
more so because she didn't get a lot of big roles after Boogie Nights. Um, and she went full frontal and she did nudity and she was consistently offered parts that dealt with full frontal nudity. And she considered going into uh, like soft core erotic films. And then she got offered uh, the part in Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. And that kind of like propelled her forward uh, into not going into the into that direction. But Heather Graham, as the story goes, had always kind of thought of Boogie Nights as like I like nothing positive came to her from Boogie Nights. So she doesn't want to talk about it. And whenever there's been mentionings of a uh, cast reunion or doing any kind of interview for the movie for like, you know, 20 years, it, it, it's like, no, thing. she's like, no, I don't want to do it. Um, so ultimately like the legacy of Boogie Nights is hit or miss. Like it's considered one of Paul Thomas Anderson's like foundational films. And it's really, really good. However, it doesn't seem like a lot of people had a good experience in making the movie or reflecting back on it where they are in their lives now and, and are proud of it. Mm-hmm. So um, it's an interesting behind the scenes for sure. So Bree, before we actually get in depth into the movie, what are your initial thoughts? Did you like it? Did you dislike it? Like what stood out to you? I'm going to tell you, I didn't hate it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and to, to preface Brie is not, uh, you know, uh, I told her, put on your art house hat for this movie. And she said, I don't have an art house hat. So you are, um, are, are these art house, like Oscar contender dramas aren't necessarily your for like your favorite movies. Um, I liked it enough to the point where it wasn't like something I would hate. Um, I just thought like... It was something, like, you had to pay attention to. Yeah. It was not as, like, you couldn't miss, like, parts of it at all. I mean, there were parts of it on my reviewing of the movie where I missed, and I I felt like, oh, what did I miss? Like, when the colonel is arrested, like, what he's arrested for, and I'm, I think it was child pornography that that character is put in jail for. And that's why at that point, Jack kind of abandons him as a friend. I don't want to deal with this stuff. Um, but I think I missed that on on this reviewing. And I, I completely understand where you're coming from, where it's like you have to pay attention to a lot of a lot of different things. And I things. feel like I didn't even catch everything. And I wrote I a wrote well, significant I, amount of notes, but I, I don't feel like I caught everything. And I didn't want to overwrite either because, like, this is my first viewing of this movie mm-hmm. where it's your review. Yeah, this um, is my second viewing of this and movie. And I, I liked how, at the beginning, we had the introduce everyone scene. Oh, it's so good. Where we're in the club and we're meeting everyone for the first it's time. A, it's a one-shot and... and I'm impressed by how many one-shot scenes are in this movie because you can parallel definitely like the opening scene to the end of this uh, end of the movie in the last scene where we are following our characters through these different environments. Whereas in I wrote like so we're starting in the San Fernando Valley in 1977 and 
our opening scene is is a one or an intro to all of these characters. So at first you see Jack and Amber come out of the limo and they go into the club and you see Luis Guzman's character welcoming them in and you get all the bright lights and uh, John uh, the, C. Riley, the loud music. Don John, yeah, they're all on the dance floor and the the camera is just following everybody. Roller Girl is there taking people's orders. She's working at the um at the club. And we just see this like this club shot of we are introduced to every single major character that's going to be in this movie. And they're all doing things that kind of give an indication to their character, right? Like Luis Guzman's character wants to be in the movies. He wants to be in, in the porn industry. And he's, you know, he's the doorman at the club or like the owner of the club or something where he is welcoming them in being very nice and charismatic and then saying at the very end like put me in one of your movies put me in one of your movies we see um like john c Riley's character and, and don Cheadle's characters they're talking about like their futures and they're discussing you know as they're dancing you know where do we go from here and then we get mark Wahlberg's or he's just like a busboy just existing he, and he he's just a busboy existing and he doesn't look like anything special whereas every character is in these flashy outfits and you can tell that they're they have this extravagant lifestyle and Mark Wahlberg's just a busboy and i like this introdu- introduction to Eddie Mark Wahlberg's character where he's just working uh, he t- takes the bus to work um, he when, just looks really when, out of place in this opening scene. When propositioned and asked, like, oh, like, he's like, what do you want to do? See my dingling? Oh, yeah. Or, so let's, like, let's we like, establish Mark Wahlberg's character. Eddie is, uh, he's got a, he's got a big, he's got a big guy. You know, you can say, I don't want to say it. He has a big peepee. There you go. Yeah. He's got a big guy. Um, I what I thought was interesting and what immediately popped into my mind in seeing this opening scene is Goodfellas. I always go back to that Goodfellas scene because I think it's one of the best shots in cinema history. You know what scene I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, you know because I talk, talk about, about it all the time. All the time. Um, the Copacabana scene in Goodfellas where they follow Henry and Karen as they go through the back in the kitchen of the Copacabana and he's introducing her to everybody and then they end on the club. But this scene almost seems like it's trying to be anti Copacabana scene. Like it's trying to do the complete opposite of the Copacabana scene where instead of being, instead of guiding our characters starting in the kitchen and ending in the club, we start in the club, we start in the club and end in the kitchen where it's Jack goes there to like, decompress a little bit and that's well jack sees eddie and he like goes into and asks him like about himself and it's like why are you working here when you could work like closer to home it's like i don't want to work close to home he's like what do you want like i charge this much for this and and it's like i said wow he's like a sex worker i was like he's just trying to like you know he's got a big schlong yeah he's he's like i got a big penis also can we use it can we mention real quick that you had said at the beginning of the movie, we better not see the the schlong. We I better not I see it. It's got to be. It's got to be the MacGuffin, right? It's got to be the uh, the tool used in the movie that's always mentioned but never seen. And I told Bree, I'm like, if we see it early enough in the movie, it's going to lose all of its mystique, 
right? Yeah, you don't want to see it because you want to just imagine what it would look like. And then I I didn't remember this from my first viewing, but they do show it at the end. And I said, you said, oh, my God, (laughs) it is a prosthetic penis, though. Well, I would assume it's it's not a real. I was like, Marco Allward would be a really famous guy if that was his real penis. (laughs) Um, Because that thing's huge. Like that his the the penis that they show at the end, flaccid penis, looks like a fully erect penis. Pretty much. It's pretty big. It's he that thing would be a behemoth. It would split people in half. We don't need that we're going mature here on the review podcast for this one um mark Wahlberg got to take it home after filming (laughs) he said it started to uh deteriorate after a while yeah because it's because of what it was made with yeah so i mean so what would you do like would you take it home if like you were in that position if paul thomas anderson looked at you and said you want to keep it why not? It's funny. <laughs> sure, I put it on my mantle. I got the two uh, WWE championships hanging up against the TV. The penis in the middle. Yeah, the, the big schlong in the middle. Okay. Uh, so uh, Jack Horner, is that his name? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Burt Reynolds' character, Jack, who is a... Um, Jack is a pornographic film director. And he is... Like, his main thing is, I just want to be an artist. His whole, like, the crux of his character is, I just want to make that one good artistic movie. And he has that, later on in the movie, he has that conversation with with Mark Wahlberg's character where he's like, listen, I get it. I know, I understand, like, what brings people to to the theaters. Like, what people want to see is the actual pornographic acts shown in the movie. But what gets him to stay is that really, really good story that draws them in. So that after they, you know, do their thing in the theater, they stay for the story, you know? And uh, I think that Jack's character is so fascinating because I think it's almost like a commentary on... And, and I, I talked to Bree about this when we started talking about the Paul Thomas Anderson movies and we were discussing Boogie Nights for a little bit and I told her I said I think Paul Thomas Anderson was kind of predicting the way movies would go later on because this movie comes out in 97 and Jack's character is that artist who wants to make that really good movie but is kind of like we understand that the audiences want this specific thing And it reminds me of, like, Marvel in a way, or, like, these superhero movies where we want to make them very good and we want to make them artistic, but we still understand what the audience wants. Like, nobody wants to see a Spider-Man movie where it's just all dialogue, you know? But you have to give them the action. You have to give them Spider-Man. But at somewhere along the line, you can incorporate those artistic values and those artistic visions inside of the big blockbuster superhero movies. So I think Paul Thomas Anderson was almost predicting that trend of like these artistic directors moving towards big blockbusters, moving towards the things people want to see, because we get that notion of like, nobody wants to see the, uh, what, what was the movie that just won the Oscar? Coda? Coda. Nobody wants to see Coda. Coda is just a bunch of people talking, right? Coda is just a, I haven't seen the movie, but Coda is 
just a drama. It's boring. Nobody wants to see that. What's going to put butts in seats is the next big Marvel superhero movie, the next Fast and the Furious. And right? that's why people get angry about those kind of movies, mm-hmm. like a Scorsese disavows. Like Scorsese says it's not cinema. Yeah, and it's like, well, I would disagree because, I mean, you might disagree. You can merge the two. You can you can have a superhero movie and still be artistic, right? Like Black Panther did that. Um, I would even argue No Way Home did that. I was big proponent of No Way Home should have gotten nominated for an Oscar. It was really good. Yeah. Um, but I, I think like the character of, and, and Jack is such a, he's so like auteur in his vision for these movies that even in, when they start going into the eighties and they're starting to tell Jack, like, look, you have been filming everything on traditional film. But the way that things are moving is digital. It's on everything's on video. We can cover everything up in post production later on, but everything's on video. And Jack throws a big hissy fit and he says, "No, I'm not moving past film. I don't care what the future holds." And I think that that was definitely like Paul Thomas Anderson putting a little bit of himself into this character and saying, "Like I understand what the trends are. I don't want to do it." I want to do what I want to do. And I want to do what I think is artistic. But you understand that you have to have like some of the trends in there. You have to have some of the things that are going to put butts in seats. Well, you also have to be realistic with where your medium is heading. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So Jack is kind of a fascinating character. And when he meets Eddie, he immediately takes an interest in, in Mark Wahlberg's character and immediately is like trying to bring him into the world of pornography. Um, what else? Did, uh, where where did we leave off? Because I kind of went on a yeah. You went on a tangent. There. We're still. Um, we were. Oh, still Mark Wahlberg, seventeen, and is, starts off as a seventeen-year-old person. Yeah. Um. To which I said, "Can we do that? Can we put a seventeen-year-old in a porn movie? Like, what are the laws? I guess I'm not really sure." Nowadays, that probably wouldn't fly, but the laws uh, might have been different in California in 1977. We just don't know. I I wrote that, like, everybody in this movie has a very, like, in-depth, nuanced portrayal of their character. So, like... And and I'm skipping around a little bit. We're not going to be going chronologically. Yeah, there's no way to we, do it. Um, I, I really like Julianne Moore's character. So, I was just going to bring her up. Okay, so Julianne Moore's character, like, we go through, she's, in the beginning of the movie, she's on the phone with, like, her, after a, the day at the club, she gets on the phone, she wants to talk to her son. Um, she's, Whoever she's on the phone with is not letting her speak to her son. She's like, I'll, I'll get a lawyer. I know lawyers. I'll get a lawyer. And it's kind of, you assume that she, whoever that is on the other side of the line, it's probably the father of her child. She doesn't have custody of the child. She hasn't seen the child in a while. But Julianne Moore also plays like a mothering character to all this new talent and kind of becomes um, Mark Wahlberg's like mom what we, and Roller Girl's mom. Yeah. So essentially at the heart of this movie i think the larger theme here is or the motif is family and the family dynamic and how things can shift and it's like your family can have arguments and you can dislike each other but at at the end of it all your family so we have like jack 
who and Amber, Julianne Moore's character, who kind of are mother and father shepherding in this new generation of pornographic actors. And I told Brie, so Julianne Moore's character, even though it's like never a hundred percent mentioned, she mentioned she's she's a pornographic actress, but it, it's like the way she plays the character is this porn star from yesteryear that is now shepherding in and mothering in the new generation of talent. And that's where we get this like family dynamic. So Julianne Moore's character is also like, she's, she's a a mother, like legit mother herself, but she does not have custody of her kids. So she kind of tries to create a family out of the family. She doesn't have, you know what I mean? Where she's, she takes she, in all these ki- these young because stars she, because she doesn't she, have that she's relationship of, with her child. Yes, so she, it's like a way to be a mother without, like, actually being the mom. Right, and there, there's a, definitely like a very motherly vibe, and it's mentioned pretty frequently in the movie. Of like, she she feels as though she's a mother to Mark Wahlberg, to Heather Graham, to. Uh, uh, John C. Riley's character as well. Um, and we start to get this like family dynamic of all of these different characters that come together to shoot porn. And mm-hmm. Julianne Moore's character is also like a big drug addict as well. And she's like always doing cocaine. And that even gets brought up a little bit later on when she goes for custody of her child. She doesn't have a representation, which I don't understand why she doesn't have representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like her ex-husband um, says, you know, she had visitation one weekend every month or something like that. But in but the place where she chose was not appropriate for children. He's, There's drugs yeah, he says and it's like porn and drugs and stuff that's not appropriate for and children. I think it and really... she lies. She says, I'm not doing drugs, even though she is like pretty heavily into drugs. And I think that there's nuance to this character because even though we don't see Amber doing drugs, we know that she's high. You know what I mean? Like there are different things that Julianne Moore does with that character where it's fairly obvious that she's not sober. I feel sad for this character because like she just wants custody of her son. She wants to see her son. She's not able to get that. She's a victim of circumstance. Do you think she should see have or at least be able at least visit? There are parents worse than her. That give visitation. Do you I think, think, do you think, I think she's she a good was, mother? I think she was desi- denied visitation because of her work, and I think that is unfair. I don't know if it was just because of her work, though. I think it was the drugs, too. But do, do you think Julianne Moore's character is a good mother? Well, we didn't see her as a mother because... Do you think she should have custody of her kids? Not like she shouldn't have... Like, she should have visitation. Mm-hmm. She should be able to see her kid. Like, there's visitation that you can get where it's supervised visitation. Sure. Like, where you have, where there's a third party, not necessarily her ex-husband, but, like, an aunt or something. Or, like, even a hired, someone by the courts hired mm-hmm. to, like, watch while she's spending time. Like, there are far worse parents who have custody of their children. Yeah. yeah. And I think 
you do a kid a disservice when you take away a parent. Um, the implications that this kid could have because, like, he did have a mom who wanted to be a part of his life. Yeah. But dad didn't let mom be a part of your life. But it, I don't know. It brings us to, like, this conversation of even though the parent might be well-intentioned and say, like, I want to be a part of my kid's life. Do you think they're necessarily equipped to be a part of the kid's life? Like, do you think Julianne Moore's character was equipped to be an active mother? She definitely mother? couldn't have custody. Like, he couldn't spend a weekend at the house. Yeah. And but, that's what I'm saying. But, they were filming porn every but, weekend. But you can do, like, a couple, like, hours at a park for mm-hmm. visitation. I think that's the part I have issue with. Like, she's not, a, she's not abusive. She's not... I believe she wouldn't do drugs when she's with her child. But I do think that part of that character is like she is making like it's her choices. I think she does go more downhill after the judge. Oh, she definitely spirals. She definitely does more drugs. There's that scene with her and Roller Girl where um, they're like they're coked out of their minds and they're hey, will you be my mother? And she's of course I'll be your mother. And that's definitely like the lowest we see both. I don't know if that's the lowest we see roller girl, but the lowest we see uh, Amber's character. And I feel like there's a certain amount of pity. I feel for her character. Another character. I also feel pity for is bill. Bill is William H. Macy. He's the the, uh, sound guy, right? Is that a cinematographer? Maybe something like that. He gets cucked so many times in this movie. Yeah, he keeps walking in on his wife, uh, sleeping doing, with other doing people. it with other people, which leads him eventually to not to murdering his wife, whoever her lover was, as well as killing himself. Like on the second to midnight when it becomes nineteen eighty two. Um, I like that at the end of the movie, Bill's presence is still kind of there. Like, and we'll talk about the end shot of this movie, but when we're moving through the house with Jack, all the family is there. Like all of our cast is mm-hmm. there still. And we have a, uh, a painting of Bill that's hanging up. So like even his presence is still kind of felt in the family. Because I feel like this is a better... To get this movie, it's better to go character by character than to tell you. That's what I was thinking too. Um, it's going to be the same way with Magnolia later on, be, but and then we're because then I'm starting with we started with Julianne Moore's character, then we went to William H. We, Macy's. We talked talk Jack a little bit, and we, I think there's definitely more to say about these characters, but um, we don't want to sit here all day. Let's move on to a a very interesting character um, that is. Eddie. Eddie. Oh, well. Do you want to end with Eddie? I think we should end with Eddie because I think there's more to say about him. Um, Roller Girl. Heather Roller Grams. Girl. So we we meet her. She, she sits she's, on the sidelines for a little while. We meet her. She's in the first scene. She's a waitress. Obviously, she's into porn, and she's doing movies because she's. Then we get her in school, and she's getting harassed. By the boys in her class. So I'm not surprised she drops out of school. Yes. Um, because they're harassing her for like work that she's and, doing and, outside. And Roller Girl is just like down to clown for the whole movie. Like she, she has, has no complaints about anything until we get to like one scene later on. Well, I said she, I wrote down Blondie's in school. Uh, like 
she had and i wrote she has been in something because these men are harassing her mm -hmm. so well do you think she's been well she already knows jack yeah. and amber so, so we're to assume that she's already been in movies i find her character interesting because she was wearing roller skates in school and I, I was like, she was even wearing roller skates in the eighties when like rollering wasn't a thing anymore. Like the fad had died out. And I, I've, she's kind of used by J Jack in a way because she goes, yeah. Jack tells her to go give Eddie a blowjob, and she's like, okay, because she wants they want to know what he's working with. Oh yeah, yeah. And at the, the beginning of the movie, yeah, and mm -hmm. they find like he has a big penis. And they, that's why they invite him to in the car and where they take him um, to go to Jack's house. And then he asks if you want to, ha like, have relations with her, mm -hmm. which, yeah, well, she Wait, says she yes. Does. And that's when, yeah, Heather Graham does full frontal in that scene. I was like, whoa, Heather Graham I said, wow, frontal. she went and did full frontal nudity in that scene, which is crazy. Um, but, you know, what Crazier whatever. things have happened. Yeah. Um, she I'm does trying a, to look at some of my notes here. She has like a, a sadder like ending with... Not an, an ending, not but like a progression middle, of character. Like in, at one point, we're in the 80s. The big film is done. They're all like DVDs and stuff like... No, not DVDs. No, no, no. Um, like tapes. Is that where we go through? Because... Or so video. Like as, as the... So I guess because this they, is where it's like tough to categorize and like talk about this movie because it's this isn't a movie where we go beat by beat like we've done in the past this is isn't a movie where we can go character by character because there's like stuff hap stuff happening that is detrimental to the characters so when eddie mark Wahlberg's character is introduced to this world he's very good at what he does right like i'm moving very quick He's very good at what he does. They start having a lot of fun. They're making a lot of money. They're winning a lot of awards. He becomes Dirk Diggler. Um, he, his name is Dirk Diggler. And um, eventually the 80s hit. And the 80s is when things start changing. We're talking about how we're moving from film to video, right? Mm -hmm. And Jack doesn't want to do that. He's hesitant on doing that. Um Mark Wahlberg's character, Dirk Diggler, is getting into drugs pretty getting hardcore. Getting into drugs, and he's getting older. And he's getting and, he's and getting older, and he's starting to become a little bit more stale in what he's doing. Like, he's not as big of a hit anymore. And then Amber and Jack start talking to more younger talent. And Eddie believes that he's, 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 he's going to get replaced. Yeah, that's so the he kind of getting he replaced. acts out and gets fired. He gets into a fight with Jack and gets fired, and then that's when when everyone Dirk goes Diggler on. leaves the family. It's like the family splits up, that's, and everybody kind of spirals downwards. And with Roller Girl, what happens with her is like they're in a they're in a limo in one scene, and they're like they're driving all, around. They're all doing things that, like. If the family had not broken up, they wouldn't be doing that. So, like, they're doing this type of... And, and this is juxtaposed with Dirk Diggler's character going back to his roots and, like, basically being a prostitute. Mm -hmm. um, this is juxtaposed with that, but 
Jack, the cameraman, and Roller Girl are in like a limo and they're driving around. They're like, we're going to pick up somebody off the street and we're going to film them having sex with Roller Girl. And like, this is film. This is film history. Now you can tell Jack does not agree with what he's doing. Like this isn't his artistic vision. This isn't what he wants. But this is the trend. This is where things are going. So he does it anyway. And now when they pick up somebody to um to film with roller girl this person knows her they went to high school together. they went to high school together and she kind of like immediately when he says her name she kind of goes like shut up like yeah she gets she gets very defensive and so this guy ends up getting kicked out of the limo and he gets mad he gets mad if you're gonna give me you're gonna be worked up you might as well finish blah 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 and then jack beats him up and then roller girl gets at him and, and she like st- curb stomps, stomps the crap out of him where they have to pull her away because he she could have killed him and i think that we we talk about like that part of the movie is where we see like our characters at our lowest and that's definitely where we see roller girl at her lowest and this brings me to kind of something that, I don't know, we're going all around. This is yeah. such a tough movie to like. Yeah, we're just talking about characters. We're just talking about things. But it brings me to a point that I made when talking to Brie of like, there's that moment where all of our characters are at our, at their lowest, about halfway through the movie. And they're all like in situations that would have been fine if they were still in their like fantasy world of filming pornography in like Jack's backyard. Um, like the stuff with roller girl in the limo would have been completely fine. Like that sex scene would have been fine. Had they still all been together at a, as a family in that world of pornography. And it wasn't a random person. Mark Wahlberg him and John C. Riley, who are like really good friends, they start trying to sell drugs to make money and they get into like, we'll talk about this scene later on, but they get into like a gun shootout with a drug dealer and people start dying and they're like way in over their heads. And like that, that scene of them being like action stars, which they've established that they are in the porn world, doesn't quite work out. So whenever these characters try to step out of pornography pornography and do the things that they would have done in the world of pornography they fail horribly at it and they can tell like that we are uncomfortable here this like being in the real world we're uncomfortable and they all end up at the end retreating back to what was comfortable to them and i think that's a really interesting like look at these characters is jack jack tried to keep up with the trends and do something different and still keep the artistic vision. And then he failed at it. Roller girl tried to have sex outside of the, the porn world. She failed miserably at it. Uh, Dirk Diggler tries to be an action star outside of the porn world fails miserably at it. Amber tries to um, like be more of a mother and kind of fails that too she can't get custody but so they all end up retreating back to the world in which they're more comfortable with where they can all act out those roles and you know each character matures like roller girl does eventually go and get her ged Mm -hmm. so that's her like happy by the end of the movie that's like her happy ish ending 
Yeah. For her. So Roller Girl's character definitely takes like a turn and then, you know, has kind of a happier ending. Jack doesn't really change much, but it still seems like he retreats back to that world of filming porn, even though he wants to be like more artistic. Julianne Moore's character gets her children back. She gets her children back. So after, and now I think it's a good time to talk about Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley's characters. John C. Riley plays a wizard. Yes, he does. A magic wizard. He does this one thing where he makes a glass float. Oh, yeah. And I thought, if I saw that in that time period, I'd be like, kill the wizard. Scram, wizard. Kill it. Kill the wizard. So John C. Riley plays Reed Rothschild, who is another pornographic actor that Mark Wahlberg's character meets when he's introduced into Jack's world, right? The world Mm -hmm. of pornography. And they become like immediate best friends and immediate like siblings almost where um, they, they almost try competing with one. How much can you lift? How much can you, can you do this flip off this diving board into the pool? And they're, they're all kids. They're all kids. You can tell like they're young. And I think this has a lot to do with Mark Wahlberg's character not coming from a great home. Mm -hmm. He's obviously, he dropped out of school. Mom and dad don't like each other. Mom is kind of like really mean and abusive, verbally abusive to him. Like to the point where he's telling, I'm just going to leave. And she's like, you can't take anything because none of this belongs to you. I bought everything. This is my stuff. And like she's rude to him and rude to um her own husband so it's no surprise that this child like as a child he probably didn't get a lot of love and he's looking for it somewhere else and he's kind of i feel like eddie eddie is kind of pushed into this lifestyle because he's not intelligent yeah i brought brought that up to you i'm like he just seems like he's a normal he's a normal guy with a big schlong he's not intelligent he has the the big penis he comes from a broken home and that's kind of the people who get preyed upon mm-hmm. um, in the adult film industry. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, we even see that later on when uh, Mark Wahlberg's character has a falling out with Jack and then quit, like gets fired and now he's on his own. And John C. Riley's read is like his ride or die. Right? I'm glad he kept, I'm glad that that friendship was remained constant because... I feel like without having that, I don't know if we'd ever get the return back. Like, I need help. I need you. Like, I need this family. Mm-hmm. Like, we are not okay. And I think that run-in with the drug dealer where they almost died kind of, yeah. like, snapped him back. So, like, we can tell, like, Dirk Diggler is not good at anything else because when he gets fired he and John C. Riley start trying, trying to get to, into music. And they suck. And they're horrible at it. And nobody wants to sign them on a record deal. And they're, not, they're just not good at anything. So and then they spiral down further and they get into drugs. And that's when they meet Thomas Jane's character, Todd, who eventually like the penultimate scene where we eventually return mark Wahlberg back to jack is when they try to rob a drug dealer yeah i wrote wrote back to jack because 
that scene was kind of like super intense. Bo- John C. Riley's character and Mark Wahlberg's character agreed to go scamming. Like they were going to sell baking soda as drugs and get the money and go. But the other character wanted to like wanted money and wanted drugs and wanted to get saw, all he saw it. an opportunity to maybe make more money so let's talk about that scene real quick because alfred molina is in this movie for this one scene only and he plays like this very coked out like i don't know if he's on meth or whatever but he's very like hyperactive drug dealer in a speedo in this big house and like you said uh Mark Wahlberg, John C. Riley, and Thomas Jane all go to try to scam this guy. And they they do. They do it. They and, succeed. And they, both characters are like, we, we should leave. Like, let's leave. Let's leave. Let's leave. We should get going. Meanwhile, Alfred Molina's character is jamming out to Sister Christian and uh, Jesse's girl. And, and there's, this, there's this moment where Jesse's girl's blasting, and we just get this, like, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 second shot of it's just straight on Mark Wahlberg as Jesse's girls playing. And I wrote down like you can so tell based on the facial acting in that scene from Mark Wahlberg that Dirk Diggler is way in over his head. This is not the porn industry. This is not what he's comfortable with. I'm in way over my head right now. I wrote, this is rock bottom. Th- that's probably where he realized this is rock bottom. This is rock bottom for these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you you would have thought rock bottom was like when the new ki- they brought the new kids in and he like, c- could not deal with getting replaced, being second fiddle, and like leaving. Mm-hmm. But no, this is realizing that you have nowhere else to go. Yes. And it's either you're going to die or you go back to where you were before. Yeah. So, like, obviously that drug deal goes down bad and people die and get shot. And eventually that that brings Mark Wahlberg back to Jack. And and I want to talk about one other thing with Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley too. And it's their buddy cop series of movies that they create with Jack. Because we get this scene where, like, Dirk Diggler is talking about how he's he's just not a fan of in porn movies. It's all about all about the guy hitting the girl. All about violence. All about like us uh uh smacking the girl around. He's like I don't like that. He's like, I don't like that. Uh they start coming up with this idea of like a buddy cop like James Bond type action series of porn and he uh a Dirk Diggler and Reed they both pitch it to Jack and Jack's like, let's do it. So they start filming this like eighties buddy cop series of movies and everybody gets what they want out of it. So Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley, they're starring in movies together. They're best buds and they're getting to be the action stars that they always want. Because but they're also the porn stars. They're also the porn stars. They're making Jack's making the movies he wants to make where people are coming well, for the story yes. and staying with for the porn after the porn is done and like everyone's getting exactly what they want. And this with is that. like the greatest time for them to be together because they're all getting what they want out of this. And there's that scene where they're editing the movie together and Jack goes, 
this is my best work. This is what I want them to remember me out of. And I thought that that was particularly um, special in, in how that is put in there because you can definitely tell that all the characters are enjoying what they're doing. They're all having the time of their lives. They're all getting something out of this. So when eventually Dirk Diggler quits or gets fired and they have that falling out, they're they're all at their lowest and they're all not doing what they want to do. They're mm-hmm. all finding out that we can't work without one another. So like Jack is still making porn, but he's not enjoying it as much. He's not finding any artistic value. He's in not it. involved in the editing process yeah. at all. He just is going. He's just filming it and he's done because he doesn't even go into the room with the guy mm-hmm. editing anymore. And uh, he's not interested in the star. Like he didn't yeah. have as much like that guy is not a part of the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I thought like that was a really interesting like nuance to the characters there. And especially in that scene where they, they they botch the drug deal and they all start getting shot at and Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley have this moment where they can choose to be the action stars that they portray in the movies, but instead they just run away. Like, we're not equipped for this. We're actors. <laughs> we're not we're not actual action stars. So th- th- that's what I mean when I say like they are every time every one of these characters steps out of that world they fail miserably at what they do they're not so they all retreat back to being in the comfortability of the porn industry and that's why the ending is no surprise to anyone that they all come back together mm-hmm. they're all living like together they, yeah they're still making so when when movie mark Wahlberg goes and begs forgiveness to jack jack comes and accepts him and i, I wrote that this was a kind of an interestingly shot scene because when Dirk Diggler is apologizing to Jack and saying, I need help. I need help. And he's like rock bottom. We never see Burt Reynolds face. Like we never see Jack, but we do see him go in for the hug. And it's like I said, the nuance of these character decisions and the way that this stuff is shot is so, so, so fascinating because you don't need to see Burt Reynolds' face to understand what the emotions are conveying in that scene and like where the characters are at in that particular like, scene. You know he's going to forgive them. Yes. Because everyone's kind of like at their lowest. Like mm-hmm. we need to, to bring the family back together. But do you think that it's like a toxic, kind of a toxic family, I guess, quote unquote, family dynamic that... Well, yeah, they're all doing drugs together. I mean, making porn porn together. But I'm I'm saying like in a sense of Dirk Diggler was the guy that broke up the family, but he's also the guy that brought them back together. Like the family can't be a family without Dirk Diggler. Do you think like that's kind of toxic or do you think that's generally how families are? Like if one person leaves, it kind of tethers away everybody else. Sometimes people are just the glue. They're the people who keep the family together. Mm Mm-hmm. And you would think that that would be Jack, right? Like Jack, the patriarch of the family, would be the one that ties everybody together. No, it's the baby boy. It's the baby boy. It's a golden child. So I I thought that was kind of interesting. I think we play around with themes a lot. Family is definitely the theme. It's the family you choose, not the family you're born into. Yes. Which I think that's an important, like, choice made by 
Paul Thomas Anderson don't know if it's a personal choice from his personal life. It may have been. Where it's a lot the of his family movies, you choose and not the family you're born into. A lot of his movies deal with family. Um, a lot of his themes involve family. Like we're going to get into Punch Drunk Love and like that's going to go into some stuff about family. Um, a lot of his themes in his movies are about personal accountability and how characters re- consistently refuse to take accountability for their actions up until they're at their lowest. So like... There's parts in this movie where Mark Wahlberg's character says stuff like, I like I was given this talent. Like, I have to do, I was given the talent. It's like, everybody's given one talent. Like, I didn't choose the talent. It just, gave, like, this is how I'm responding to it. And it's this, like, lack of personal accountability that we see in this movie up until the very end when he goes back to Jack for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of these party scenes, too, in the movie are really interesting in, in the way that they're shot. So, like, I think we get, like, a couple of different party scenes that all convey different things. So, the very beginning opening scene, everybody meshes well together and everybody, it's the bright lights, the loud music, everybody's having fun, we're introduced to all the characters. And then when the 80s hit and we see that party scene, the characters are a little uh, discombobulated. A bit more because now that the 80s are here it's more of a confusing time maybe we're getting phased out maybe things are changing and then we get um a little bit later on when kind of everything goes goes to shit so the party scenes are very indicative i think of um the way the progression of time and the progression of these characters go as well there's probably some other stuff that I wanted to bring up too, but I didn't get a chance. It was to. a good movie. I feel for Jack. I really do. Um, I kind of, not that I have like a personal like attachment to that character because I'm not like a filmmaker, but I, as somebody who wanted to get into film and chose not to do it because I'm like, I would not, I would not keep up with my own standards if I was like a filmmaker. I chose not to go into film because I just I don't think I could motivate myself after failure. Mm -hmm. I I mean, like I've I've always had a hard time with like when you fail, having to get up and do like try again and trying not to like any kind of artistic thing you do. You have to know how to deal with failure. And I think that is the hardest thing to do yeah but i i kind of understand where jack is coming from here where it's like i just want to make that one good thing like i want to have that one piece of artistic value in what i'm doing um i understand like i get that and i I, i'm glad that that was like portrayed on film that paul thomas anderson because i think that was kind of him talking at that point too where it's like we all want that one good thing that keeps up with our standards and we can carry on that momentum from so it's interesting to me that when the buddy cop stuff comes along jack's like this is it this is the artistic value that i was looking for this is the thing that's going to a put butts in seats but make people stay for the story uh what did i i made a comment here somewhere that i'm trying to look for i i i wrote that like we have that pool party scene when um what's his face is uh mark Wahlberg is introduced 
to everybody. And it, I said, like, everybody looks at this guy and just sees money signs or like money symbols. Definitely. Like cash bags. Uh, John C. Riley's character, I, I looked at you and I said, I am convinced this is the same character from Step Brothers. <laughs> he acts the same way, says the same stuff. I'm like convinced John C. Riley's performance, like he gave the same performance in Step Brothers that he gives in this. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting too. What else? Anything else? Not that I have. So I think we covered a lot. We covered a lot um, in the movie, and I'm just looking through my notes. I mean, sure obviously, miss, I'm sure we missed like a lot. We did. We missed like the John. T- I'll just go over the Don Cheadle arc where oh, he yeah. he kind of like constantly is changing his look to fit with the times. He's really passionate about CD players and like no, stereo like, system. Is he passionate or is he bullshitting us? Like, is he a good sale? That's what I was considering. He just wants to be in sales. I is, feel. He a, is he a good salesman? Does he know a lot about stereos or was he making all that stuff up? I mean, he goes into stereos in the at the end. He's he, he makes, gets his business. He gets his business. He ends up marrying the girl who does the oil paintings. Yeah, who is also a porn star, right? Who's also a porn star. And they have a baby by the end. So that's his little happy ending. He gets There's that store. diner scene, too. That's really weird. The diner scene is the it's how he becomes, how he affords his. Yeah, because they refuse to give him a loan because he's a porno, uh, pornographic actor. Yeah, and he's like, but I'm an actor. Like, this money is going to be for a business. And they're like, no, we can't do that. Because of the business that you partake in. And so he ends up catching a lucky break where someone's robbing a store he's at. And one of the patrons shoots the robber who then shoots the... Crazy circumstances Shoots happen. the guy who shot him who accidentally shoots the cashier and then money drops. And Don Cheadle's character just takes the money because that's what I need to start my business. Mm-hmm. He, he gets a lucky break. But I do think that Don Cheadle's character is, again, nuanced in the sense, and I talked about this earlier in the podcast, that it's Cheadle figuring out that the way to be successful is just to be yourself. Because he tries to go through all the different fads, and he fails at it, and he gets criticized for it, but then he figures out... I mean, once he meets that girl, he kind of yeah. becomes himself, because she's just interested in who he is. Yeah, for sure. Um, he he lucked out like he had a better like ending than a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that last scene before we we wrap everything up too because I think it's very much a parallel of the first scene, but in like in like a different way. So Jack makes note in the movie too of like we just want to be chill. Everybody just wants to be mellow. Like we want to make a mellow movie. We don't want any like intense stuff we just want to make a movie and we want everybody to be chill and mellow and i think where we started in the beginning is not mellow not chill it's everybody's partying and loving this lifestyle whereas if you juxtapose that with the last sequence of the movie where it is it's another like here's our cast one shot scene where it follows jack through the house but now he's like it's like the island of misfit toys in his house like Don Cheadle's putting together a stereo system. Mm-hmm. The his wife is outside painting while John C. Riley's character is playing with their baby, and it's like Julianne Moore's character and uh, Mark Wahlberg's character. They're getting ready to put on like a 
a movie scene. They're, re- they're ready to film. Yeah. They're ready to film. And like everyone's like together. They're living in the, the house they're, together. They're together. They've all retreated back to the comfortable lifestyle that they've had. But it's a little bit more calm. Right. Like it's not as drug fueled. It's not as party. It's not as like chaotic as it once was. It's like now we're just a family and we're here and we're still making porn and we're still in the comfortability of this world that we've established for ourselves. But now we're in it together. But now we're in it together. And we all realize that we can't do this without one another or that we're just not going to enjoy it as much. We're not going to find that artistic value without each other. We're not going to have the same success that we would have if not for one another. So, And that's where we see... Mark Wahlberg's fake big penis. Yeah, he gets up. He gets this like monologue of like practicing his scenes in the in the mirror, and then he gets up, and you just see it like plop out. And I, I was, said, "Holy cannoli!" Whoa, <laughs> big. And, and he's like, "Oh, we do see it." Yeah. Oh, and I I, I looked at I told Brie I was like, "This is a great bookend for the movie because now you get to see it. it's that one thing that." is like a mystique throughout the entire movie. Like how big is the schlong? And now you finally get to see it. And it do- does it pay off? I mean, it's huge. It pay. I think it pays off pretty well. It's a great payoff for the end of the movie. Uh, we didn't even talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, Scotty. Uh, was there yeah. much to say about Scotty other than like he's, Scotty, he's Scotty gay, he tries to put the moves on. But Scotty's um, everywhere too. Like he's always there being the camera guy or the sound yeah guy. he's like uh, i think it's important to say mark Wahlberg's character doesn't like take the putting the moves on him personally like they're still friends like no cool move feelings. that was a good move on like dirk I, I would probably if one of my friends tried to kiss me i'd probably act the same way be like dude calm down like no, i'm not <laughs> like, no thanks guy <laughs> let's just forget it happened um every yeah I, I, I that one shot scene at the end of the movie everybody is where they need to be and everybody is who they need to be. And I know that Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to end the movie on a realistic note where it's like, none of our characters really change all that much. I think they don't change. They just grow up a little bit. Yeah. It's not like they're drastically different characters than we've seen them before. It's not like our our events of the movie have drastically altered the perspectives of these characters. If anything they go back to where they were in the first 30 minutes of the movie where it's like, that's the lifestyle that everybody is comfortable with. And this is what we're going back to. We're just a little bit more grown up now and we can handle it better. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was kind of a cool ending, um, ending of the movie. Is there anything else that we, I'm 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 sure there's a bunch of stuff that we haven't gone into. You obviously were recommending everyone watch. Um, and hopefully you did watch before you listened to us just ruin the whole thing. For I, you. I, uh, I recommend this, but it's also I feel the same way as a Paul Thomas Anderson uh, focus group member where it's like, would I recommend this movie to everybody? No, no, because of the content that it deals with. And it's like that not though I wasn't as uncomfortable watching this as I was uncomfortable watching Euphoria. Well, yeah, there definitely wasn't as and much. And you know why I think? It's because in Euphoria, those are teenagers. Like, they're supposed, supposed to, be teen- to be teenagers. And in this movie, they're adults. So you're more likely to feel comfortable watching adults. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I was like, sometimes I feel gross watching Euphoria. Mm-hmm. Even though every actor is an adult. 
and some of them my age or yeah. older, I still feel more comfortable watching Boogie Nights than I would feeling. There definitely was not as much because I know they had to send it through the MPAA a lot to not get an NC-17 rating because Paul Thomas Anderson, when he pitched the movie, he's like, these are my demands. I want it to be a three hour long movie with an ensemble cast and I want it to be an NC-17 rating. And they were like, no NC-17 rating, but you can do everything else. It's like, okay, deal. So they only had to cut 40 seconds out of the movie for it to be a rated R. But there were some notes that they had to like reshoot or readjust certain things. Mm -hmm. So like one of the notes in the MPAA was that you can film a sex scene with dialogue, but there can't be any active sex happening in that scene with the dialogue or else that's porn, you know? So like when we see characters talking and having sex, they're not like humping and and talking. It's like they stop and then they talk. That was that was part of the change of um, the MPAA that, that that they made for that the accommodations that they made for the MPAA. But I think that uh, that's that's it uh, that we wanted to talk about. I think that's it, Bree. Yeah. Um. So I have to ask you, Anthony. Does this make your top one hundred movies? If I'm challenging myself to, and I we didn't make this a rule, we didn't establish this rule. But if I'm I'm going to challenge myself. Um, if I'm challenging myself to pick one Paul Thomas Anderson movie to out of the ones that we review to put on the list of the top 100, Boogie Nights is not one of them. It doesn't make on mine either. It was good. I was surprised that I liked it because it's not my cup of tea. It was very good, though. I think that if like if we put this on a list of the top 100 movies and we like put our list in a time capsule and buried it into the ground and like 200 years later, people found it. And we're like, Boogie Nights, might as well check that out. They would be like, oh, great what? heavens. Oh, great heavens. Like, <laughs> what the hell are these guys watching back then? <laughs> um, yeah. So it does not go on either of our lists. However, I'll give it an honorable mention. I thought it was a fantastic film. And it's definitely like the one thing that puts PTA on the map. And for good reason. He's 26 years old when he makes this movie. And I understand that, like, why Burt Reynolds might have had a problem with PTA on set. That, like, he's 26 years old and he thinks he knows everything. And he thinks he's, like, God's gift to filmmaking. But he can put his money where his mouth is. Mm -hmm. And I think this movie proved that Paul Thomas Anderson was a force to be reckoned with in, in film. And he's a visionary and he knows what he wants and he's going to be able to film and edit and direct the way that he wants to direct. And it's going to be good and it's going to be cinematic and it's going to have themes embedded into it that you can zone in on. I thought, what did you think overall about the performances of the movie? I thought standout performances of this movie Julianne Moore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she's 100% the best performance. Worst character. We talked about this. I liked her character. I liked her character too, but I thought that she was definitely the character that is the worst person in the movie. Other okay. than the ones that actually kill other people. Or the, ch the child predator, but okay. Or the child predator, <laughs> but of the main cast. I think that she's the worst person in the movie because the decisions that her character makes throughout the movie 
ultimately all come at a detriment to everybody else. It's her obsession with being that motherly figure that puts people in a bad position later on, puts Roller Girl in kind of a precarious position, puts her own kids at a, in a, like the decision to want to be a mother, but also want to be a porn actress and do a bunch of drugs, puts her kids and her actual family in bad positions. Um, we talked about there's the scene where they shoot the first sex scene between Mark Wahlberg and Julianne Moore. And she gives him that one request where he's told not to like finish uh, in the way that, you know, he wanted to, but she tells him to do it otherwise. And he could have gotten in a lot of trouble for that. Um, I I think like if like she, she probably could have ruined his career as it was starting by giving him that request but she did that just because of her own weird like fascination or like obsession with being with him or like being close to Mark Wahlberg's character. She's just like to me the worst character or the That's fair. That's yeah, fair. I, I, you know what I'm saying? Not the worst character, but the worst person in the movie. Fair. Yeah. Um I thought performances were great. I love him. Uh Everybody in this cast, I think, stands out, and everybody does a phenomenal job, and you can tell that because of the work they get in the future. Yes. Except for Heather Graham. Heather Graham does a great job, but she did not get a lot of work in the future. Criticized it because of that. We love Heather Graham, though. Austin Powers. What else was she in? Hangover? I've seen her a lot. I've I've seen her in stuff. I just can't, like, remember. Sorry, Heather Graham, if you're listening to this. We love you. But um, cool, 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 cool. So, Brie, what's on the agenda for the next episode? Um, Next episode, we are getting into Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Oh, I'm not going to say it the third time. I'm not going to say it the third time. Beetlejuice. <laughs> I did it. Oh, there he is, Brie. There wow, he is. Stop. You made me look oh, and no. think there was a bug in here. Michael Keaton. No. Beetlejuice. Get out of here. Oh, okay. Let's get, uh, let, let's finish this thing up. So. You want to tell them about our uh, where we can find us? You can find us on Instagram at review underscore pod. You can reach out to us via email at is it review podcast one yes. at gmail.com. You can, you can follow Anthony on Twitter at GLDTV1. And how can we find you, Brie? Um, you can, you know, watch in the movie Boogie Nights. I think my Twitter handle pops up in one scene. You gotta keep. We gotta keep vigilant. You gotta keep vigilant. It it'll it'll be in there. You might have to take a magnifying glass to your television. It's um, probably on an actor's bottom. Oh, you gotta check Wahlberg's butt. Yeah, yeah. You could check his fake uh, prosthetic schlong Maybe. that he wears. Um, She's it's, in the Hangover. It's, ri- yeah. it's written on uh, the fake prosthet- prosthetic schlong that is now hanging on Mark Wahlberg's mantle because he got to take it home after mm-hmm. filming. Um, great. So we will be back next week on the review podcast with Tim Burton's classic film, Beetlejuice. And I think that's going to be it for us. So great boogie nighting with you, Brie. Excellent. Zip back up your pants and let's get out of here. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm Brianna. And I'm Anthony. And this is the review podcast. The review podcast. Yeah. <laughs>